Hello and welcome back to the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. Doing the second part in the two-part series I have been doing on brain injury, neuroinflammation, glial cell priming, and brain health specifically. Today I'm going to touch on interventions, so what you can do with diet, what you can do with lifestyle, movement and exercises, and nutraceuticals, so supplements. But if you haven't listened to the previous episode, I highly recommend that you listen to that one as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be before you listen to this one, if this is the one you found today. I am just conscious that the title of the previous episode was around brain injury, and some people may feel that they don't have a brain injury, and therefore the inflammation, or shall I say information, in that podcast isn't necessarily relevant to them. I still think it would be a good listen for anyone who is experiencing cognitive symptoms, chronic fatigue, or perhaps concerned about the energy in their brain. Definitely listen to this one if this is where you found yourself today, but if you want to dig a little bit deeper, I highly recommend that you listen to the previous episode as well. And as I've said already, what we're going to do today is talk a little bit about neuroinflammation and the strategies we can use to support the brain. A lot of this is going to focus on the things we can do to support the modulation of the brain's immune system. So in the previous episode, I talked about glial cell priming, basically stating that when the glial cells become primed, the immune system of the brain changes forever. It's permanently switched on, it's permanently activated. Therefore, we can't necessarily undo the priming, but we can use strategies to modulate the changes of the brain from an M1 pro-inflammatory state to an M2 anti-inflammatory state. Basically, we're down-regulating the pro-inflammatory glial cells and we're increasing or up-regulating the anti-inflammatory glial cells. And that's really a big part of the strategy of addressing cognitive function because a lot of this inflammation that's in the brain is interfering with the production of brain energy in the form of ATP. And it's the low level of brain energy that's then driving a lot of the symptoms that we may experience if you have chronic fatigue, whether that is poor brain endurance, whether that is loss of function, whether that's sensitivity to stimuli like light or sound or crowds, being in busy environments, whether that's challenges with your mood or um, anxiety or even experiencing chronic pain. All of these are the consequences of low brain energy. And if we can get on top of the inflammation in the brain and we can shift primed glial cells from a pro-inflammatory to an anti-inflammatory state, that supports better brain energy production. And with better brain energy production, we get better cognitive function and less symptoms at the end of the day. So, so the way that I'm going to introduce the information today is to break everything into two major categories. The first category is going to be basics, and then the second category will be like second tier care, so the next level or level two care for the brain. 
So you may have heard me say in previous episodes that the basics matter. And whenever we're working on some sort of complex or chronic illness or fatigue recovery, generally we're looking to build strong and solid foundations. And often we think, you know, if there's something really complex going on, we need to have complex strategies to address the complexity of the case. And yes, there might need to be some highly specific little things that you do as an individual for your specific case. But those things are most effective when they're layered onto a solid and strong foundation. And a lot of these foundational things are things that human beings, irrespective of their chronic illness status, needs for health or need for health. And these are things that we definitely want to be dialing in as we work to support chronic fatigue. So the first thing on the list of the basic care is sleep. And I would say for somebody who has neuroinflammation, especially for someone who has glial cell priming, you've got to sleep. You've got to make these basic foundations non-negotiable. And I appreciate that sleep is easier said than done. Sometimes there's a whole complex web of things we need to solve just to get someone sleeping. And we may need to address blood sugar so someone can sleep. We may need to address inflammation so someone can sleep. We may need to address infections so someone can sleep. We may need to address the nervous system so someone can sleep. We may need to take sleep supplements or use weighted blankets or take MCT oil at night. There's so many different things that we may need to do to get someone sleeping. But if you're not sleeping and you have a brain injury, you have neuroinflammation or if you, or if you have glial cell priming, you've got to find some way to sleep. And I've done a whole episode on sleep, which I believe, believe was episode 14. There's also a blog on my website called How to Have a Good Night's Sleep. If you go to my website, you go to the blog section, just type in sleep in the search box and you'll find it. I constantly learning, growing, developing, which means that the content that I created a year ago is even a little bit outdated. There's like more detail that I would now add if I was to create that content today. Even though there is the episode on the sleep for the podcast, the blog is probably a little bit more up to date. There's maybe a few things that I mention in there that I don't mention in the podcast and vice versa. So it's worth checking out both and just really doing everything possible so that you can sleep and also understanding that it's okay if you need to nap, provided it doesn't impact your sleep for the following evening. So for me personally, even with my brain health today, especially in the lower estrogen parts of my cycle, I'm more resilient in the higher estrogen parts of my cycle and post ovulation. But I still really like just to do like 20, 30 minute yoga nidra in the day. Sometimes I'll nap. Sometimes I just listen to the yoga nidra. But doing that and even having a 10 minute or 15 minute nap in the day can really change my brain health for the rest of the afternoon. And obviously my work is very cognitively demanding. So that's something I build into my day so that I know that I'm functioning at my absolute cognitive best. So that would be the first thing is you got to find a way to sleep. And I know it's not easy. 
but you have to sleep if you want to get traction on your health and traction with your brain. So then the next thing is the brain needs oxygen. Oxygen is another non-negotiable for the brain. We need oxygen to make energy. And if you're not oxygenating your cells, if you're not transporting those oxygenated cells to the brain, that's going to be a problem for your brain health and brain function. And there's lots of different things that can break down in that oxygen supply chain. And again, I do have an episode on oxygenation. It's episode 11. But just kind of a little checklist of things that you'd want to consider would be you need to rule out if there's anemia. There's a blog on that on my website. Just go to my blog. You can search anemia. It will come up. A good thing to check is oxygen saturation. So how your cell blood cells are being saturated with oxygen. That can be done with a pulse oximeter. You can buy one and just connects onto your finger on Amazon for about 15 or 20 pounds. A lot of smart watches and aura ring have that function built in now. But ideally your pulse ox should be about 98% or at least greater than 95%. If it's lower than 95%, then you want to start to think about what might be going on there and address that. We also want to make sure that circulation is good. So if you're someone who's always complaining of cold hands and feet, that's a clue. If your fingernails are breaking, chipping and peeling, that could be a clue. If you've got um, like fungal infections on your feet, that can also be a clue that you're just not getting blood and circulation to the extremities. And, and then we need to work out why. And obviously movement can be a great thing for circulation, but it's not always accessible for everyone, depending on the stage of their journey. If someone will tolerate sauna, I like to use that as a movement alternative, but we've got to find some way to get the blood flowing, especially to the brain. I like to do legs up the wall to encourage blood flow to the brain. So that is also something you can do a couple of times a day. If there's sleep apnea, we want to rule that out. And there are home test kits that you can buy to test yourself for sleep apnea. And we also want to make sure blood pressure is optimized. So if blood pressure is too low, we're not pumping blood up to the brain. So the oxygen actually isn't getting to the brain. If blood pressure is too high, it impacts the perfusion of the blood and the oxygen into the brain. So a higher isn't better. It's about optimizing blood pressure um, and that would be at 120 over 80 um, milligrams of mercury and so here there's obviously many reasons why someone's blood pressure might be high or low and we need to do our own investigations to optimize that but basically when we're looking at the health of the brain or when I'm looking at the health of the brain in a client I'm looking at all of these things and I'm even if we don't know exactly how much each one is impacting the person I just want to optimize everything um, I, my thinking is you know how much juice can we squeeze out of this lemon let's just optimize every single possible thing that could be impacting your brain health um, and see where that gets us so 
oxygenation especially is a non-negotiable. If there's iron deficiency, B12 deficiency, folate deficiency, that needs to be addressed as a priority, which sometimes means we need to digestion because it may be a case of not necessarily poor intake, but poor digestion and absorption of those nutrients. So we've got sleep, we've got oxygen. The next thing in terms of the basic foundations would be energy. And the brain can use glucose or it can use ketones, sort of a very minimal basic level foundational self-care would be optimizing blood glucose stability. And again, I've done a separate podcast, episode 10 on blood glucose stability. I also have a blog on my website looking at glucose stability and blood sugar monitoring. So I would listen to both there may be some information that isn't covered in one or the other but the two together will give you a pretty robust foundation and so then from that point we may need to do more work and i'll talk about that when we go into level two care but we want to have stable blood glucose because if blood sugar is going too high then what's happening is we're not necessarily able to get that glucose across the blood-brain barrier into the brain where we need it or if blood glucose is too low we're creating oxidative stress that can trigger uncoupling of the mitochondria which impacts ATP production. So we do want to make sure that blood sugar is optimized between 4 millimole per liter and 6 millimole per liter and that's foundational. Then we maybe need to make some other decisions about where we go with dietary interventions from there and in some cases we may be looking at a ketogenic diet especially if there is glial cell priming. So keep that in mind, just because your blood sugar is stable doesn't mean the work is done. It just means you've taken the first step in terms of doing the work. So the next thing we want to think about as a basic foundation is exercise and movement. I've already mentioned that exercise and movement may support blood flow and circulation. So by moving the body, we're getting a flow of blood throughout the body, and that's going to support tissue oxygenation, in this case, the brain. But exercise can also increase the production of something called brain-derived neurotropic factor, or BDNF, which increases the expression of the anti-inflammatory M2 glial cells. So we want exercise and movement for blood flow, but we also want it because of the way the BDNF influences the anti-inflammatory environment within the brain. And with chronic illness, it is such a fine balance because excessive exercise, which could actually be only a very small amount of exercise depending on the individual, can increase oxidative stress and inflammation and then make the brain inflammation worse. And I experienced this time and time and time again in my own journey, trying to exercise, think I was only doing a little bit, my body couldn't handle it, I experienced oxidative stress, inflammation, and my brain took the hit. And I went through years of trying and failing, trying and failing, trying and failing, but eventually I did get there. And so understand that as part of the process, there will be trial and error. And again, I've got 
some other episodes that you can listen to on how to exercise if you have fatigue, how to exercise or build exercise tolerance if you have fatigue. Also got a couple of blogs on this on my website. So just go to a blog and search exercise and, and they should come up for you. So exercise is a tricky one, but we want to find some way for you to move. However, in some cases, exercise may not be tolerated until the brain inflammation has come down. So sometimes the brain is so inflamed, even very, very small amounts of movements will just be too much. And if that's the case, we want to think about all the other things I'm going to share in this episode. And as you start to notice a little bit of a difference in your cognitive function, then that might be an opportunity to retry some very small amounts of exercise. And again, here I want to say that nobody will be able to tell you exactly how to do it. There will be trial and error, you'll make mistakes, but it's something that you have to find a way to do it in some shape or form and build on that because that's going to be a very important part of re-establishing the mitochondria, which then improves ATP production, which then gets you out of the hole, so to speak. So the next thing on basics is a conversation around alcohol and alcohol is something I frequently get asked about and unfortunately the answer is what most people don't want to hear because the answer is there is no amount of alcohol that is good for your brain. And this will depend on how much neuroinflammation you have, whether or not the glial cells are primed or not, but you know, as your health improves, if there's not a significant amount of priming, then you might be able to tolerate some alcohol and you may be okay to have a drink from time to time. But if there is significant brain damage and glial cell priming, then alcohol is really something that you may want to abstain from lifelong. Especially if you're somebody who's very sensitive to alcohol. For example, if you're really impacted, like half a drink makes you dizzy, you have vertigo, you have loss of long-term memory, maybe you have severe depression or anxiety after drinking, those are all clues to the extent of the inflammation in your brain. And if you are experiencing those types of symptoms after drinking, then alcohol would definitely be something that you want to avoid. At the end of the day, remember that hangovers are neuroinflammation. And I don't drink. I have been in the past a bit of a binge drinker, like in my student days when I was younger, in my 20s. Um, but I don't drink at all now and I don't, don't really miss it. I don't feel the need to drink. But sometimes people will ask me and they'll say, well, I know, why don't you drink? And I, I often say, well, I spend every single day trying to get the most out of my brain. And I spend every single day, like, trying to do everything that is the opposite of feeling hungover. So why would I choose to drink something that I know is going to increase the inflammation in my brain? It's just, for me, it's a no-brainer. Obviously, you have to arrive um, at these decisions for yourself as well. So the final thing on the list is stress. Stress management is essential for brain health. And this is where I think some of the nervous system brain retraining programs that are available out there now in the chronic illness community they do a fantastic job of helping people with this and there's a lot of different programs out there i obviously have my nurturing resilience program as well 
but there needs to be some way for the individual to manage their stress. And that might mean making some big lifestyle changes may require a job change. It may require ending a relationship, may require moving back home with your parents so that you can get more support financially or support around the home. And I'd love Bridget Dana. She wrote a book on mold. I can't remember the exact title at this point in time, but I remember her saying once that sometimes when you are experiencing a chronic illness, you have to humble yourself. You know, nobody wants to move back in with their parents necessarily at the age of 30 or 40 or whatever it might be. You know, nobody wants to necessarily turn down a promotion or, you know, make some of these changes. But our ability to let our ego go and humble ourselves really maybe opens us up to receive the support that we need to relieve some of the stress so that we can heal. So stress management comes in kind of two big forms, I would say. It's removing those things from our life that are just inherently stressful and that we can let go of. And then on the other side, it's building our capacity of our nervous system to tolerate stress. And here as well is that the healthier your brain, the greater your capacity is as well. In my Nurturing Resilience program, I teach somatic practices to support the capacity of the nervous system. But you can be doing all of those wonderful somatic practices, but if you're not also working on the other aspects of brain health alongside that, it can still be really hard for the system to self-regulate. So yes, stress management can be you know, mindset tools or somatic tools or integrating trauma but it's also actually supporting your body physiologically. And I've touched on the specifically the nervous system side of things in previous episodes, episode nine, episode 38, and episode 34 are good ones that you can refer to. And as I mentioned already, I have my Nurturing Resilience program. There's live round a couple of times a year, and then there's the self-paced course that you can take any time. I think that there are some brilliant other courses out there as well. So in finding something that works for you, whether it's something that I offer or something that someone else offers, I think we all need to find ways to help ourselves. So those are the basic foundations, making sure you're sleeping, making sure you're getting oxygen to your brain, making sure that your blood sugar is at the very least balanced and stable making sure that you are managing stress in the best way possible, finding some sort of exercise or movement routine that matches your capacity as it stands right now, and um, preparing at least in the short to medium term to abstain from alcohol. Once you've dialed all of these things in, we can move into the level two care, which is that extra cherry on the top, the fine tuning, the nutraceutical support, the supplement support, and then specific exercises we can do for the brain. So just to say before I go into the level two interventions that some people may only need the basic self-care. And if you get where you need to go with the basic self-care, you don't even need to worry about this section. But a lot of the clients that I'm working with, they're complex, they've been chronically ill, they do have, they probably fall more into the moderate category of neuroinflammation that I 
discussed in the previous episode, and I suspect a lot of them have primed glial cells, which means that we do need to dig into the details, and the details really matter in terms of getting traction and reclaiming long-term better health and better quality of life. So where I'd like to start with the level two care is to look at dietary interventions. I've already mentioned here that the very first step is to stabilize blood sugar, which is to get blood sugar levels in between four and six fluctuating in within that range each day. Then once blood sugar is stable, then we need to think about what comes next. Do we need to do more work here? Obviously, dietary change when you already don't feel very well can be challenging, but for some people, it's absolutely necessary that we take things as far as we can to, at the very least, see if it improves the situation from a health perspective. So this is kind of like the scale of increasing commitment, which is, you know, a gluten and dairy free diet with the stable blood sugar. Then a paleo diet. So we're not, we're cutting out grains and we're eating basically meat, vegetables, eggs, nuts and seeds, and maybe a little bit of fruit, no dairy, no grains, no processed foods, no sugar. Then we may want to go to the next level, which is lower carbohydrate paleo diet and then we may want to take that to a ketogenic diet and then from a ketogenic diet when someone is fat adapted then we may want to introduce fasting as well and that might be in some cases the only thing that works for some people ketogenic diet plus fasting and it's really important here to highlight that if a ketogenic diet is going to be used Ideally, it should be higher in omega-3, higher in monounsaturated fats, and medium-chain triglycerides, and lower in saturated fats. And for the most part, if we're cutting out dairy, we're going to release a lot of the saturated fats. There will be some saturated fats in animal meats, but cutting out the dairy in this kind of scenario does help quite a lot. So here I'll also mention is that fasting is easiest to do once someone is keto adapted. So we wouldn't necessarily want somebody to start fasting before they have the metabolic flexibility to fast, which means that what I'm looking for clinically is does this person have ketones in their blood, but they're no longer spilling out ketones into their urine. So when someone first starts a ketogenic diet, we may see an increase in urine ketones, but as they actually start to use those ketones as a fuel source, they won't be urinating them out anymore. And in which case in time, if we're seeing negative urine ketones, we can test the blood just to confirm, yes, there are ketones in the blood, we're not urinating them out. If we know this person is keto adapted, and that's the perfect time then that we want to start some fasting. So the next thing in the level two care is to begin to explore digestive health. Digestive imbalance can lead to systemic imbalance, and this can further drive and exacerbate neuroinflammation and glial cell priming. So specifically, gram-negative bacteria in the gut can produce endotoxins, known as lipopolysaccharides. And if the gut membrane is permeable, these lipopolysaccharides, these endotoxins can pass into the bloodstream. This can then trigger an immune response, which is then referred into the brain 
and that can impact cognitive function. So this is one of the mechanisms by which our digestive health then goes on to influence brain health. And so the other aspect is that healthy bacteria in the gut are required to convert plant-based chemicals known as polyphenols into active metabolites that can be used by the brain. And so once these polyphenols, which we get from plants, are activated, they can cross the blood-brain barrier and they down-regulate M1 and potentially up-regulate M2. So they shift the inflammatory balance within the brain. And so for this reason, we need a diverse microbiome of healthy commensal organisms. And we can create that diverse microbiome by eating a diversity of plant-based fibers. Obviously, we can take supplements like probiotics as well. But if someone lacks diversity in their microbiome, they may not be as responsive to supplementation with polyphenols, which I'll talk about in a moment. And then the final piece of the puzzle is when we've got these commensal bacteria, and they are fermenting fibers that we're getting from the plant matter in our diet, they produce what we call postbiotics, known as short-chain fatty acids. And these short-chain fatty acids are anti-neuroinflammatory compounds, and they work to reduce inflammation in the brain. So we need a healthy balance of bacteria, we need an abundance of plant-based fiber, we then need the bacteria to make short-chain fatty acids from the plant fiber, and then that then positively influences the brain. But if we have poor fiber intake, if we have poor, a poor balance of bacteria in the gut, because there's either not enough of the good guys or there's multiple infections, then we're not necessarily going to be making enough of these short-chain fatty acids, and that can impact brain function. So we want to make sure we've got a good balance of gut bacteria. We want to make sure that our diet has a variety of fibers. So I recommend 20 to 30 different plants a day. But in the short term, we can always take butyrate, which is a short-chain fatty acid, as a supplement. And when I am doing stool tests with clients, for the most part, I'm just thinking of some of the ones I've seen recently with clients. Almost all of them are coming up with either low butyrate or low normal. On the lower end of the normal range, butyrate levels, when you know, really we want to have good levels of butyrate in the gut. So we've talked about dietary interventions. We've talked about digestive health. So the next thing to discuss are nutraceuticals, so essentially supplements that can support the health of the brain. And supplements are supplementary to the foundations that I already discussed. So that was the sleep, blood glucose regulation, oxygenation, movement, stress management, avoidance of alcohol. You can obviously take supplements if you're not doing all of those things and maybe they will help but I always feel that you know supplements are obviously a big financial investment if my clients are spending money on supplements I really want to make sure that we've given them like the best chance of doing the best possible job and that means that I want to see those basics nailed down consistently to make taking the supplements and investing in the supplements worthwhile so provided all of that's going on Supplements which may be the most beneficial for glial cell priming would be polyphenols. I really like using curcumin. It's the one I recommend the most in practice, but also consider 
resveratrol, rutin, luteolin, and apigenin. Essential fatty acids, particularly DHA, are really great for the brain, but EPA as well. We've already talked about the short-chain fatty acids, which ideally we would like your gut to be making, but in the short term, you can supplement with a short-chain fatty acid supplement or butyrate specifically. Magnesium may be supportive. If somebody had to choose one from the list, magnesium would not be the one I necessarily choose first and foremost, but a lot of people like to take magnesium anywhere for sleep, so it's worth knowing that it is helping with the the neuroinflammation and the glial cell priming. And then finally, antioxidants. The polyphenols cover or tick the antioxidant box, but if I was to recommend anything for a client, I would be choosing glutathione first and foremost. And just kind of anecdotally, that's what I found worked really well for me in my own journey was glutathione and curcumin. I still take those today. Every time I've thought, oh, I don't need to take these anymore, I'm feeling so good, I start to get little niggles again, and then I think, okay, I'll just start taking my glutathione and my curcumin again, and and I always feel so much better on them. One of my mentors, he takes glutathione and curcumin every single day. He says, don't have any problems with my brain, but I need my brain for my career, and I'm going to be taking these for the rest of my life. And I kind of feel very much the same, especially as I've experienced the benefit of those supplements in the past. So they are some of my day-to-day staples. So those would be the main things in terms of the level two care. We're looking at digestion. We're looking at appropriate nutraceuticals. We're looking at up-leveling the diet to the point that we need to. In some cases, it does mean following a ketogenic diet and it does mean fasting. And these are things that people often really hate me for telling them to do, but sometimes we need to do them. And it's usually the people who are the most resistant to doing them that need to do them the most, because the reason why they're resistant to doing them is because their metabolic flexibility is so poor that when they've tried it in the past, they've really struggled. So that doesn't mean we throw them in the deep end and we say, okay, we're taking away all the carbohydrate and you're not going to eat for 18 hours. It means that my job as a practitioner is to get them to the point where they can follow a lower carb ketogenic diet and do some fasting and it doesn't feel like they're falling apart and it doesn't feel so incredibly hard. But that can take time to build all the foundations and put them in place. So the other things we want to also think about is... Possibly this idea of if the brain is inflamed, is there something that is still going on which is perpetuating the inflammation? And that could be stress and trauma, but it could also be some sort of infection. And it's beyond the scope of this specific episode to go into detail about all the infections, but you can find, I have recorded previous episodes on some of these, but considering gut infections like parasites, I recently recorded an episode on that, I think episode 53, um, mold and mycotoxins. So you could look for that on my blog, just search mold or mycotoxins and then viral infections. So again, I recently recorded a podcast episode on that. I think it's episode 52 and you can also find similar content on my blog, just search viral infections. And then we can also consider bacterial infections. H. pylori is one that comes up a lot for people and dysbiotic bacteria in the gut that we've already 
discussed on the gut health. So until we can address the infection, the infection is going to be creating systemic inflammation and the systemic inflammation is then creating neuroinflammation. And if the glial cells are already primed, then the individual is really going to be feeling that. So we must address the infection to really start to get traction. All the other stuff, the ketogenic diet, the polyphenols, the antioxidants, they're all great. But we also have to remove the thing that is keeping the system in a state of inflammation. It's not necessarily always an infection. It could also be toxins like mold mycotoxins. It could also be chronic stress and trauma. And that's where the mind-body work can be very, very powerful. But we need to address it, whatever it is for that individual. So then the final piece that I'll touch on today is exercise, not physical exercise, but exercises for the brain that create stimulation for the brain. So just like when we're in our fatigue recovery plan, we need to begin to move the body so that we build muscle mass and we build mitochondria. We need to do the same for the brain, which means that when we do the right amount of exercise in the right amounts that can have an anti-inflammatory benefit for the body and it can stimulate biogenesis of the mitochondria and in this case when we're looking at the brain we're looking at activation of neurons in the brain which can then reduce neuroinflammation and increase neural mitochondrial biogenesis improving brain energy so just like we want to exercise our body to build mitochondria in the muscles, we want to exercise our brain so that we can stimulate the neuronal mitochondria. And so here we want to identify what regions of the brain have been impacted. And with my clients, I give them a questionnaire to fill out, but a lot of people will know already, you know, if you struggle with balance, then we may need to do some balance exercises. If you struggle with memory, attention, and concentration, then you may need to do some exercises which involve memory, attention, and concentration. If you struggle with speech or you struggle with loud noises, then we need to work with some sort of speech therapy or we need to work with some sort of sound auditory therapy. So here are just some examples. For the frontal lobe, which is involved in memory and attention, there's a specific app you can look at, which is the Luminosity app. For the motor area in the brain, which is involved in motor skills, you may just want to do things that involve fine motor skills. It could be, you know, even like, for example, like chopping vegetables. Like sometimes when people have fatigue and they, they stop cooking because they find it so tiring to chop everything. And I know in my own journey, I feel like my whole brain was inflamed because I can identify issues in all of these areas that I've had historically, but I'd love to cook. And even throughout my whole journey, I insisted on still cooking because I, it was just something I didn't want to give up. But I would just find the chopping so tiring or even sort of coloring in or, or doing like things which involve fine motor skills with my hands. My brain would just get so tired so quickly. So the goal is to find some things that you can do, but just not do it to the point that you crash. Do it until you start to notice you're getting a little bit tired. Then you need to stop, walk away, take a rest, let your brain recover. If your speech has been impacted, then you could consider speech therapy or even just practicing some tongue twisters. So you may have a tongue twister 
you may say it once, twice, three times, it might be fine. And then the more you do it, as your brain starts to fatigue, the harder it gets. So again, do it a few times when it starts to get hard. Maybe you do it one or two times more than you leave it. And then you come back another day. One of the things that I had and I know a lot of my clients reflect on is really struggling with noisy environments, especially say you go to a restaurant and there's background noise, there's music, and then you're trying to have a conversation with someone and listen at the same time. That's very tiring. So here you could listen to music, but just focus on one element. So for example, there's probably, I don't know, the bass, the drums, the vocals, whatever it might be. And you just focus on one of those elements. And that means that when you're in a noisy environment where there's background noise, there's music and someone's talking at you, you're strengthening your brain's ability to fixate on one specific thing. The occipital lobe, which is involved with vision, so this would be kind of light sensitivity. You can do color visualization. I think there are some apps which can help with color visualization. I think there's like a, a chakra app. You can visualize the colors that can help. The basal ganglia, so this is where you might want to perform burst activities like boxing, burpees, or jumping jacks. Again, you need to wait until your physical capacity allows for those. Then the cerebellum is involved with things like balance. Often if you have like dizziness, nausea, heart or seasickness, then your cerebellum needs attention. So here, balancing exercises would be really good, obviously within your capacity. And here I'll just add like one little final note, which is that the cerebellum projects into the vagus nerve and it has a, the ability to dampen the sympathetic nervous system. So often we think, oh, we need to do vagus exercises to dampen our sympathetic response. And that's true. But understanding also the biggest, bigger picture here, I mentioned this when I discussed the stress management, that we need a healthy brain to also dampen the signals that we are receiving, dampen the stimulus that we are receiving from the environment around us. So we need a healthy cerebellum so that we can dampen our sympathetic responses. And therefore, people who struggle with sleep, people who struggle with blood sugar control, especially blood sugar lows at night, which are waking them up, they may need to work on their cerebellum. They probably get better traction from other things they're doing to um, also work on their sympathetic nervous system. It's not just about vagal toning. It's about doing everything and having a healthy brain, thinking about what the brain needs as a whole, not just one aspect of the nervous system, which is the vagus nerve. And then finally, the parietal somatosensory area, which is involved with like body awareness in space, body scans or somatic exercises are really great for that. I have an exercise I share on my Nurturing Resilience program, which is the interoception exercise and when we do somatic work we work a lot with interoception anything kind of somatic will be good for that specific area of the brain and often we'll find is that the areas of the brain that we need to use the most for example the frontal lobe which is about attention and memory and focus and concentration we notice that more that that's not functioning but there might be other areas of the brain that are also not functioning as well. Like I never put the two and two together about 
really struggling with complex motor skills because it wasn't something that I needed to do a lot for in my day to day. So have a little bit of a think about how your brain as a whole is functioning. Do you resonate with any of the areas and symptoms that I mentioned? And then you can put a little plan together to to support your brain. The most important thing is not overdo it. Just like we wouldn't want to do too much exercise to induce a post-exertional malaise, the same goes for the brain work. It's just a small amount, then you rest, go do something else, or just you know take a break, lie down, close your eyes, whatever you need to do until you feel like you have recovered. And just like exercise, we practice, we practice over time, endurance increases, capacity increases, we can do more and more and more and become more functional in life. And as we become more functional in life, we need to do less of the specific exercises because our life is just generally challenging for us as well. So again, this is kind of a long one. I think that is a good place to wrap up. Hopefully that has been insightful. There's plenty of additional resources to dig into which relate to this episode. I hope you have been learning more about how you can support your brain. Maybe there's just one thing that you can take from this episode to move you forward in your journey. And then the final thing I'll just say before I wrap up is it has been so noisy recording this. I'm recording in my day-to-day office, which is where I do all my work, but we do have a busy road outside and it is three o'clock in the afternoon right now. I usually record earlier in the day and it just seems like all the noisiest cars have been driving past and there's been an ambulance and yeah, there's been lots going on. So I hope there's not too much background noise that's come into this episode today and challenging your temporal lobe too much and you are still able to enjoy the episode. I wish you a wonderful fatigue recovery day and I will see you again soon.